Welcome to Peninsula Grace. My name is uh, Justin, one of the pastor elders here at the church. We'll be preaching this morning out of Romans chapter 14. We've been walking through this book together uh, called The Power of the Gospel, as we see Paul unpacking that for us uh, under divine inspiration. Uh, we're looking at the back half of Romans chapter 14 this week, and uh, we're calling it Love Limited Liberty. Love Limited Liberty. In 1985, when I was nine months old, my dad and mom moved me up to Alaska. My dad took a youth pastor position at this very church. This is a picture of us at the church back when we used to congregate over in the other building. Uh, this was our, our first Sunday here together. And uh, we, 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 my dad was a pastor for about 12 years here at the church, one, one of the pastors, the youth pastor. But after about 12 years, he stepped down looked for different employment. Now, if you're in Alaska, oil field, obviously one of the, uh, the go-tos. And so he went to the slope. Picture of him, uh, one of the first days on the job. Uh, he was just really one of those roughneck guys, right? You don't want to cross him. Look at that menacing uh, smile. Yeah. Um, he, working on the slope, as many of you know, and you, we know shift lifestyle in Alaska, right? You're, you're gone half the time. You're missing half the things that are going on. You're missing half of the basketball games. You're missing half of the kids' programs. You're missing those sweet times uh, beside the bed with the butterfly kisses after bedtime prayers. He got half of those. Half of those butterfly kisses. He didn't have to do that, though, did he? My dad had a right. but He had a right to just go, you know what? I'm done providing for this family. They're on their own. And he could have left us huddled in the corner uh, without any food or, or clothes or a bunch of little Oliver Twists hanging out there. If, if he wanted to, that would be his prerogative. But out of love, out of love, my dad chose the slope. He chose to provide for his family. His love, his love for his family limited. It informed his decisions that he made as provider and protector of his wife and children. Now, last week we talked about some things that aren't inherently sinful. We call them the non-essentials. We're, we're not talking about things like murder and adultery. We were talking about things that can be sinful depending on the situation. And we said none of us are going to land in the exact same place when it comes to, to issues like alcohol or, or issues um, like, like how much screen time that will allow for our children or areas like birth control or what we, what we wear or, or don't wear, our church involvement, our tithing. And there are these areas where we're not all going to have the same conscience. We're not all going to have the same convictions. And what we said last week, looking at the first half of chapter 14, was that you're not the standard, you're not the judge. It's not my job to run around telling everybody else what their conscience should or should not allow them to do. And my convictions aren't everybody else's. And our job is not to judge others, but we said to love other people who have different convictions and consciences than us. Now Romans 12 through 16 is telling us what does this new life in Christ look like? And what we've been finding is that this life is a life primarily marked by love. Love for God and for his people. Now in Galatians chapter 5, it has this, shows us this interesting interplay between love and liberty. We have this freedom in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Christ, we have freedom, amen? We're, we're free from sin, we're free from death, we're free from shame, we're free from condemnation. We are free in him. And yet, look at what he does down in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. Just like my dad working on the slope, Love limits, it informs, and it directs our freedoms and liberty in Christ. It's not just what are we saved from, 
And listen, as a, as a Jesus follower, we're not free to do whatever we want. We're not free to sin. What does he say we're free to do here? We are free to love. Love limits our liberty and informs and directs it. Now, um, growing up, I was the uh, oldest of three, these adorable little Frankino children, and uh, my sister and I just loved to torture our youngest sibling, Jeremy. I remember we used to tell him that he was adopted uh, and that we found him in a dumpster and that he was just lucky to have us in his life. Uh, we would tell him things like, uh, I remember he loved, for, see this weird thing about loving to be naked when he was, I won't tell you the age, uh, but he loved to run around and so we would like kind of coax him outside and lock the door. Now he's locked, he's out in the lawn running around naked, right? We loved, we loved getting him in trouble, uh, you know, where it was actually Janelle and I who had done the dirty deed, but then we pegged it on the dumb young brother, right? So this was not love, right? Love does not set traps for its poor little sibling, the runt of the family, as we affectionately called him. Um, that love does, and we're going to see today in this passage, love does not set traps. It doesn't cause a little brother to stumble. In Romans 14, 13 to 23, Paul's going to show us three things that love does not do and three things that love does. So let's dive into the word together. First of all, love does not cause others to stumble. Verse 13 says, therefore, now, so he's summed up, therefore, because first half of chapter 14, we're not called to judge somebody else. We're not the judge. God is. We're to welcome them as Jesus has welcomed them, not to judge them, period. Therefore, because that's true, let's not pass judgment on one another. He's wrapping up the first section. But rather, here's what we are called to do. Rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. A stumbling block. Now, this, this word, it's a word picture that, you know, those, those old school traps, a little stick. It was actually the stick on the trap that if, if, you know, tripped, it would cause you to be ensnared in your little cheeseburger trap. And so that, or it could also be used for a word like an impediment, that if you're trying to go in a certain direction and there's something you're walking through your living room and your little dog runs in front of you and trips you over, it's, it's something that slows your progress, impedes your progress in the direction you were trying to go. It makes you stumble or, or fall. And what Paul is calling us into, he says to not, when we talk about causing someone to stumble, he's saying it means to entice someone to do something that their conscience has told them not to. It's getting them caught in, in a sin trap. And Paul says never put a spiritual sibling in a situation that could lure them into sin. That's his, his call to us. So, you know, I have, I have some friends who are um, alcoholics. <laughs> I see in my notes I put AAA. That's a different thing than AA. Um, it says, you are, or a spell check on that one. Um, it says, never, you, you, as, as an alcoholic, you are always a drink away from being a drunk. You're always a drink away from being a drunk. In other words, one sip can cause you spiraling right back down that pathway. And so for the alcoholic, many of them just say, my conscience just says, I'm not even going to go anywhere near that. I'm not putting myself down at the, the duck inn at the bridge lounge. I just know it's not a wise place for me to go. So, so as a brother to that person, if I'm to come up to them with a six-pack, put it right down within arm's length of them and start drinking, what am I doing? I'm setting up a trap. I'm setting up a very easy pathway for them to go spiraling back down to a place that they know they shouldn't go. And I know for me, thinking about, there are certain movies, even if they're not, they don't have explicit pornography or content in them, that they're going to lead me down that wrong thought road. And so my conscience says, man, just avoid that altogether. My conscience knows that it's not wise to click on that movie. But if I'm home alone and I go, eh, I'm bored, I'd like to do this, and I click on that movie, that's a sin, right? Why? Because... And it doesn't mean that everybody who watches that movie sins, but if my conscience is telling me, I know this is wrong for me to do, and I disobey that conscience, I'm walking in sin. I know, I shouldn't do it, should I? 
So if my friend comes over, if I go over to a friend's house, who knows me, who knows my situation, who knows what, what my conscience would allow, and he sits me down, and there's a group of us, and he pulls up Netflix, and he knowingly clicks on that movie, knowing the predicament that's putting me in, that my conscience wouldn't allow it, now he's walking into sin too. He's putting up a snare, a, a trap, even if his conscience is totally cool with watching the movie. It's not love if he clicks that movie with me in the room. The word here, it's interesting, in in verse 13, he says, let's not pass judgment, but rather decide not to put that stumbling block on. That's the same Greek word, both of those phrases. He says, let's determine not to be the ultimate judge in someone's life, but rather determine not to trap our siblings, not to put a stumbling block in. So the first one, he says, love does not cause a brother to stumble. Number two, love does not demand its own rights. Love does not demand its own right. We live in America, right, where we love us some rights. We got the rights to bear arms. I shoot what I want. We got rights to freedom of speech, right? I say what I want. We got a right to peaceably assemble. I gather with who I want, right? We, we love our freedom. What do we often say? It's a free country, isn't it? I do what I want. I have these rights. Now, we are grateful for those rights. But what happens is we develop this, this wrong attitude. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says love does not demand its own way. Love does not demand its own rights. Our rights, listen, our rights are not our highest prerogative. There's something deeper and more beautiful that we're called into. 1 Corinthians 8, it's a, it's a really good parallel passage, kind of a hyperlink to this verse, talking about meat being sacrificed to idols. And what was happening at the time, this is a context we don't live in today, but a person would come and worship a pagan idol at this temple. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a ruins built up for tourism. Uh, this is the temple of Diana. And um, the priest would eat, they would, they would sacrifice the meat at the altar, and then they would take that meat and they would eat some of it. Now, there's a lot of meat there, so they wouldn't eat all of it. And whatever the priest didn't eat, they would put it for sale at the local marketplace. This is, like the, this is like the cheap Walmart great value brand. It was cheaper than the rest of the meat at the marketplace, so a lot of people would buy it. And as you'd buy that meat, and maybe you'd get a bunch of friends over, you're, you're grilling out, and you have all your friends over, and the one guy, he's, he's a recent convert to Christianity, came out of that pagan lifestyle, and he sits down and he goes, man, this steak is amazing. Where'd you get it? Oh, I was down at the uh, Temple of Diana's butcher shop. Or if I was naming that, it'd be Pagan's Pork. And that's where I was, and that's where I got this food. And and as he hears that, he almost gags on his meat. Why? Because he just came out of that lifestyle, and and, and he knows all the things that was associated, his old life with the the sexual rights and and the demonic activity. And, And for him, that is still in his head, that's wrong, that you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he's devastated, and it violates his conscience. Now, is there anything evil about that meat? Anything inherent, there's not little like demons running around inside of the mistake. No, of course not. We know that. And Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, so what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one god and father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. He says there's one God. And so these, this, this idol worshiping, it's not a, there's, there, there's not a God that they're worshiping this, idol, uh, this meat unto, and therefore there's, there's nothing wrong about this meat. It's just as viable to eat as if you went down to Echo Lake. He says there's, noth- there's nothing wrong with this meat, but that's not the point. He says in verse 7, however, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real, that they're a thing. 
So when they eat food that have been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods and their weak consciences violate, are violated. He says, they don't understand what you, what you understand. So yeah, they need to grow in that. The word of God will inform their thinking. But where they're at right now, if they eat that meat, believing that what they're doing is wrong, it is wrong, period. And how easily on top of that, they can get pulled back into that pagan lifestyle. It's like a gambling addict sitting down at a, a harmless $5 buy-in game of poker when that can just spiral them right back into that old lifestyle. So you go back to Romans 14, a couple laws that we want to look at here. The law of knowledge. First of all, he says in verse 14, I know, I know this, this is my knowledge, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He says, I know this. I know that in Christ, all foods are, are permissible. He's echoing Jesus' words from Mark 7. Remember when he's talking to the Pharisees? And he goes, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what, defiling, or what defile him. He says, it's our evil heart, our sin nature that's the problem, not the meat that we eat. There's nothing in, listen, there's nothing inherently wrong about, about the meat that you're eating. And in the same way, he says, there's nothing inherently wrong about that beer. It all comes from, God made this. It's not inherently evil. It's what we do with it. It's our hearts that are the issue. He says, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and it is expelled. <laughs> He's saying you eat it, and then you poop it out, right? Pardon my French. That's, he said, that's, that's all that it is. That's, that's all that, there's nothing evil about it. He says, he declares all food clean, which for the, the Jew coming out of the kosher diet, this is going to be a real turning point for them uh, and what they had, had known. So he says, um, there, there's nothing inherent about this food, but, 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 end of verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If, if, you, if your conscience tells you, I cannot eat that, I cannot drink that, and you go against your conscience, you are sinning. So there's the law of knowledge, but then beyond that, there's the law of love. He says in verse 15, for if, you, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So even, he says, if it's not inherently wrong for you, you to eat that meat, you know you have freedom in Christ. You have a right you have freedom to be able to eat that. But if it causes someone else that you're sitting at the table with to violate their conscience, that it encourages them to do the same thing, that is not love. Love does not demand my right. And in the process, it destroys the one, he says, for whom Christ dies. Because you have freedom to eat that meat, but in that act, you are sinning because you're causing your brother to violate their conscience. See, the small things are big things. The small things are big things. It's never about what it's about, Right? This is not about meat. There's something much bigger going on. Last Sunday after church, uh, I went with my extended family to watch How to Train Your Dragon 3. There was ever a movie that just demanded not just one sequel, but two. It was How to Train Your Dragon. There's a lot of steps involved. Now listen, I don't care about How to Train My Dragon. I don't, be real, I don't even own a dragon, you guys. I don't, I don't need to know how, I don't need three movies to tell me how to train it, right? I just don't, I just don't need that. And, but listen, this was not about going to the theater, right? I would never have gone to that movie by myself. I'd just be the creepy old guy with the popcorn in the back with all the children, right? That's just not healthy, that's not wise, right? So, so I would never go there by myself. Can I try your soda, right? Like, just no, let's just stay away from that. But this wasn't about the movie. This was about being with my family, spending time with the ones that I love, and to be able to watch my niece June for the first time with her eyes up on that big screen, watching the movie, buttery popcorn just like all over her face. What, what, a, what, a, what a cool moment to have with my family. That's what it was about. 
So when we get into these things, it's not about what it's about. When we have an argument, we fight with somebody. I was telling you last week about when I was at Subway and I got kicked out of the Subway because I was arguing with my eventually ex-girlfriend over whether or not cheerleading was a sport. And it's not. I still maintain that, but that's not the point. It wasn't about cheerleading, right? That's not what it's about. When we get into these stupid arguments, it's not about what it's about. What is it ultimately about? We want to be right. We want control. It's a pride issue. It's evil, not because of the thing we're arguing about, because of what our hearts are doing in the process. And here, it's not about meat. It's not about meat. It's about setting a trap for a brother, the bacon trap. It's it's about luring them in to cause them to stumble. And that, Paul says, is eternally huge. Verse 15, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. There are realities of faith and conscience at play that make non-serious things like food and drink eternally serious things. The uncleanness, Jesus said, is in your heart. It's your conscience and your motive, not the food. And so if you demand your right in these non-serious things, it becomes a very serious thing indeed. Love does not demand its rights. It loves. Uh, number three, love does not tear down. Love does not tear down. Look at these words again, verse 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, again, kind of a similar way of saying to stumble, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now look at verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, this is just food. It says don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What God's trying to accomplish here, everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong. It's a sin. It's eternally important for anyone who may, to make another stumble by what he eats. These are harsh words, powerful words. If we encourage someone to act against their conscience, what we're actually doing is nurturing a hardness of heart in them. And this is a lack of faith that if it's not checked, if it's not repented of, It will lead to their ruin and destruction, he says. So if you continue to disobey your conscience, this is how Paul said it to Timothy, you you develop a seared conscience. This is a word, it means to be rendered insensitive. Like when you brand a cow, uh, the branding of an animal was the word picture at play here. What happens? The place where you branded it, that scar tissue builds up and it loses its sensitivity. It loses its feeling in the area that it was branded. And he says, if you continue to disobey your conscience, over time you develop a hardness of heart, an insensitivity to what God is trying to call you into to to be able to obey him. And so he says, this is a very serious issue at at, at play here. So what can happen? The alcoholic can be led down this path where they stumble back and plunge back into alcoholism. The gambling addict goes back into financial and relational ruin. The pornography addict back into destroying their life and their home, the other people involved in the problem. Even subtler things, the words that we say, can drag people back into a a gossip kind of mindset and lifestyle. Maybe it's spending habits that you're unknowing, like you're encouraging them into by the, what you're doing, or, or, or maybe it's compulsive overeating because of what you're putting in front of them, what you're eating, when you know kind of where they're at with that. And those things, listen, small things are big things. It's all just as destructive because it's about sin. It's not about the thing. And then he says these words, man, so penetrating. He says, by what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. The one for whom Christ died. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says, man, if Jesus Christ is willing to give his own life up, to to lay it down for this person, for their salvation, for them to know their God, he says, you're not willing to give up a little freedom? 
You're not, if Jesus was able to sacrifice his blood, if he surrendered all of his freedoms and rights to come down to this earth to die, he says, you won't pass on the bacon? You won't pass on the, the beer? You won't say, I'm not going to watch that movie? In order to not say, to save your brother and not destroy him? Man, what matters more to you? We've got to think eternally on these issues. The love of Jesus puts others' needs before his self. That's the new life in us. Do not destroy your brother. Love doesn't tear down. What does it do? It does the opposite. Let's start looking at what love does. Love builds up. Love builds up. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. He says it's not ultimately about the small stuff, but it's of righteousness, right living, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That word men is the general term for mankind. Think about the world. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here's the reality. The world is watching us as believers. And sadly, too often, the church is known about what we fight over, about what we're against. The church, oh yeah, they're anti this and they're anti that. Doesn't mean we don't stand for truth. But are we primarily known about what we argue over, about what we hate? Instead, we should be a hospital for sinners. We should be a place where you are loved and welcomed and accepted, is what he said at the beginning of 14. This should be a place not where you're judged and compared with, where people accept you where you're at and then help you grow into Jesus. Let's show the world this righteousness he talks about, this rightness. Not a holier-than-thou-are attitude, but true rightness, loving others well. There's a real peace that we're invited into. There's a joy that we can show the world in the way we interact with each other. Let's serve Jesus by pursuing and focusing on those things, right? Majoring on the majors, that our attitude and behavior, everything should be about building other people up. That's what we're called to. Love does that. Love builds up. Number two, love lays down its freedom for others. Love lays down its freedoms forever. This is a sentence we need to camp out on for a minute here. He says, any freedom, this is not a verse, I I wrote this. Um, It's not biblical inspiration. Any freedom we are unwilling to lay down in in love for another becomes bondage. Did you hear that? Any freedom that we're unwilling to lay down in love for another becomes, becomes bondage. I have freedom in Christ to drink a beer. I have freedom in Christ to get a tattoo. I got a freedom in Christ to wear spaghetti straps. So the elders won't let me, but I have freedom to do it if I want to do and uh, find a new job. But the moment that I'm unwilling to lay one of those things down in love for somebody else, that freedom, here's the irony, that freedom becomes shackles. That freedom becomes bondage. That freedom becomes sin. I like the way that New Living says it. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between God and yourself, yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for something that they have decided is right. Because if your conscience is clean, if you see that you have freedom in that area, blessings on you, man. Enjoy your freedom in Christ and enjoy that thing that you're partaking with. But, it says, man, keep it between you and your, and your God. In other words, don't flaunt that freedom around in a place where you might even risk causing someone else to stumble. So I got the freedom to indulge in that drink. But am I doing it down in the duck inn where I might run into somebody else who that really trips them up? Or am I doing it in the privacy of my own home or around a person or two that I, that I know we're at the same place in this and it's not causing them to stumble? We've got to zoom back out and say, man, what's the big picture here? What's the point of our lives? And Paul does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul remembered he had a laser-sharp focus on what his vision was. What's our vision as a church? To present everyone complete in Christ 
to, to reproduce disciples of Jesus. The whole point of what we're doing here is to point people to Jesus, that they would know Jesus, that they would delight in Jesus, that they would become like Jesus. He says that should drive every decision that, that you make. Paul talks in chapter 9 about all the rights he had as an apostle to ask people to support him financially, all these different things. But he goes, you know what? That's not the point. The question never is, what right do I have and how do I demand it from people? He says, the question is, what's the most excellent thing that I could do in this moment that will point people to Jesus? That should be my litmus test every time. I love how he wraps up chapter 8 when he's talking about meat sacrificed to idols. He says in verse 13, Therefore, if, God ma- if, if food makes my brother stumble by what I eat, causing them to encourage them to violate their conscience, I will never eat meat. I don't know of a greater sacrifice than going vegetarian. That would be brutal. He says, lest I make my brother stumble. I'll never eat meat again. Never eat meat again if that causes them to stumble. What an attitude. That should be our attitude. What matters more eternally? I'm going to stand before my God someday and I'm going to be like, God, man, I am so glad I drank that beer down there. I'm so glad I watched that Netflix show. Yeah, I know that, it, you know, that it, it destroyed my sibling in the process, but man, that was a really good movie. I did not see that ending coming. Or do I come before him and go, man, this soul dancing with me before you in your presence is here because I laid down some small and significant rights so that they could know you and grow and flourish in you? And play those scenarios out in our mind. Let's have the eternal perspective. We're here for a blip of vapor. Love lays down its freedom for other people. Last thing love does, love trusts God. He brings it all together here in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because this eating is not from faith. So he points out here, if you're not sure, maybe you're looking at something in your life and you're going, I don't know if this is right or wrong for me. Like, I'm not totally sure I'd be allowed to do this. It might be wrong, but you will go ahead with it anyway. If you, if you have that doubt, as he says, Paul says you're sinning because it's not from faith. If you're doubting it, don't step into that. Err on the side of not stepping into that thing if your conscience is not clear on it. This is how he, I love how he lands the plane. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Why is it sin? Because it's not done by faith. It's not done by faith in our God. Hebrews 11 says it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot please God on your own. It's impossible. We're sinners. He's a holy God. The only way we can please him is by faith in the one who is acceptable to him in Jesus. So the root of all sin, the root of all sin is a failure to God. Every wrong attitude, every wrong behavior, every, every wrong thought stems from, ultimately, it's a failure to trust our, our God. So you think about that. That means anything that we do can be right or wrong. It could be a sin or, or it could be not a sin. So eating bacon can be a sin or it cannot be a sin. Changing a diaper Mowing your lawn, texting your friend, drinking wine or not drinking wine, coming to church or staying home. No matter what it is, if it's not done by faith, it's a sin, period. The Christian life is not a list of external do's and don'ts. It's about belief or unbelief, or maybe better said, belief in God through Jesus or belief in something else, namely yourself. And only belief in Christ is acceptable. And that's that's why, by definition, what do we call someone who doesn't know Jesus? An unbeliever. So by definition, the un- everything the unbeliever does is, is sinful. Why? Not because the non-Christian is always doing the worst thing imaginable. Like they're always committing adultery and always murdering somebody. No, non-Christians help people across the street too. Non-Christians give to charities too. But that, that's not the issue that, that Paul is getting at here. At the, the heart of the issue 
The heart of the issue is if it's not done through faith in Christ's finished work, then it does not glorify God. It's missed the mark and is sinful. Now, we got, we got two paths ahead of us. It's very simple. It's not easy. It's not, that's a different thing. It's not easy, but it's, it's simple. We can either trust that God's way is better. It's the way of faith. And then we'll do it. We'll, we'll, we will obey him. We'll, we'll do that thing if we believe his way is better. Or if we don't trust him, if we're walking in unbelief, then what are we going to do? I'm going my way. You see, God says, I want you to trust me right now in this moment. That If you, you put that thing down, it's, it's better for you to not drink that wine right now because there's this brother, sister next to you that's going to cause them to stumble. So, so I can believe him or I cannot believe him. And, and if... And if I really believe that drinking that wine is better, this selfish mentality, this immediate gratification is the best thing for me, that God didn't have a clue what's best for me, that's what, that's what I'm really telling him, then I'm going I'm to turn to the bottle. But if I believe that God's way is better and I'm going to trust him in that, then I'm going I'm to pass. And one day when I stand before him, I'm going to see how that served my brother or sister. I'm going to see how that had eternal value and I'm going to be rejoicing because God's way, every single time, it's better than my way. See, what's done by faith is ultimately done. We're telling God, you're all that I need. I'm content in you. I I trust you. I'm I'm resting in you. I trust that you're enough for me, that you're going to give me everything I need, and that your way is best. That's what we're communicating to him. That's why it's the only way to please him is when it's done by faith. But if we feel a pressure to do something that's wrong and then yield into that temptation, what are we in effect saying? We're saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I need that immediate physical pleasure more than I need you. That I need that approval from that person more than I need you, even if it means that I'm defiling my conscience or potentially destroying them in the process. It's an act of unbelief. It's a distrust in my God. And that's a very serious thing. That's why small things are big things. So here's the application. I, sometimes I think we've got to be careful. What we often call people to is, well, if, it's, if, we need to be, if it needs to be done by faith, then just have more faith. And I can tell you all, just believe your God. Start believing him. Quit not believing him. But, and sometimes we picture God coming up to this, you know, this soldier in the army and just saying, have more faith, son. I, I believe. I can't hear you. I, I, I believe. All right. Well, then believe harder. The application is not just have more faith. See, listen, the whole issue in the first place is our, is our, is our sin, right? Which comes from pride. It comes from trusting ourselves and not him. That's why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus came and trusted God on our behalf, on the behalf of the unbeliever. Jesus said, my, your will be done, not mine, even if it means death on a cross. And so the application point is not just have more faith. Muster up some more faith, like grit your teeth and just, I'm going to believe you, God. It's not what he's calling us into. It's not have more faith. It's look to Jesus. It's look to Jesus. Like Peter in the water, Jesus didn't bark at him, have more faith. He said, take your eyes off yourself and your circumstances and put them on me. As you look to me, I will save you. It's, it's the beautiful words of the, of the author in Hebrews. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is the author, author of my faith. My job is to look at him. And you know what happens as I look at him, as I get to know him, I start to grow and become more like him. And my heart starts to be what his heart is, a heart that trusts my God. And it loves other people. Philippians 2 says it this way. Have you this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus? 
This is a new mind. He doesn't just say, copy Jesus' behavior. He says, you, you have a new life in you. You have a new mind in you. And that new mind is Jesus' mind. And what's Jesus' mind? We see it lived out in the Gospels. Others, 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 others. It was a mindset that says, I will do whatever it takes for them to know God. That for, for the people on earth to know their God, to delight in their God, to have a relationship with their God is the most important thing in the universe. So I'll do whatever it takes for them, putting their needs before mine, even if it means dying on a cross in their place. I'll do it. This is li- love limited liberty. Jesus was in heaven. He was good. <laughs> Him and the Trinity, they didn't need anybody else. They had a relationship before anything else was created. Jesus didn't, they did not need to make us, and Jesus certainly didn't need to leave his rights as God. He didn't owe us a thing, but his love limited his freedoms. He did not demand his rights, and I'm eternally grateful for that. In love, he came down, and, and that, that's the love-limited liberty that, that the Spirit, his own Spirit in us invites us into. And to have this mindset that is yours in Christ Jesus, he calls us to Are you willing to do whatever it takes in love for your neighbor, your brother, or your friend to find delight in God? Is that not worth passing on the bacon, the beer, the Netflix show? Is is that not worth saying, I'm not going to say that four-letter word in front of them because I know what it does to them. I know where it takes them. And we can lay down our liberties with joy because one day when we get into his presence and we see the amazing things that God has done, we're never going to say, oh man, I totally regret not drinking that beer. We're going to stand before our God and say his way was better. Let's look unto Jesus and in love lay down our liberties for the sake of the other. Father, I am so thankful that Jesus did not demand his rights, that Jesus in love laid down his liberties, came to this earth and died in my place. Father, I freely confess that that is not my mindset. So many days when I walk in the flesh, my sinful, fleshly, uh, uh, selfish mindset, that I'm saying I I have the audacity to say that I know better than you. Instead of listening to you, I'm too busy demanding my rights, demanding my freedom. I should be able to do this. This isn't fair. I, I shouldn't have to think about that other person. Why don't they get over that thing? Father, you've given us a new mind. We pray for the grace to trust you more as we look to Jesus and become like Jesus, that we would be the kind of people in this church that would be willing to lay down our liberties in love for the sake of the brother or sister. I don't know where people are in this room today. I don't know what you're calling them into, but your spirit's doing a work in their heart right now. And so I pray that they would not have a seared conscience, that they would not tune out your word, that they would not tune out your Holy Spirit and what he's inviting them into, and today have the right priorities, that we might be a people who are asking, what can I do? Not what can I get away with, not what rights can I demand, but Lord, what would you have us do? How could we live in the most excellent way that would point people to Jesus? What a beautiful name it is. The precedent, not only what he did for us, but that new life that lives in us, and that's the new life that's going to allow us to love other people this way. And we walk in his truth. It's in your son's love, loving name that we pray. It's a beautiful name that we pray. Amen.